We don't need to be told to play. It comes naturally, instinctively, joyfully. As Taylor Swift put it, players going to play, play, play. But why do we do this? Where does this urge come from? The question becomes even more mysterious when we consider the fact that many distinct species play, even ones which are separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution. Our guest this week is Gordon Burkhart, a professor at the University of Tennessee. He's an ethologist, so he's interested in animal behaviour. He's also a herpetologist, so he's, he's particularly interested in reptiles. Gordon has made many contributions. He introduced the concept of critical anthropomorphism, which is where we neither blindly accept that animal behaviour that seems somewhat human-like really does represent analogous emotions or um, instincts to those that we have, but nor does critical anthropomorphism demand that we deny animals the possibility of having some human-like characteristics. And indeed, it asks us to use our own understanding of ourselves and to see where that might justifiably apply to animals. But Gordon is perhaps most known for his contribution to animal play. His 2006 book on the genesis of animal play laid out five criteria for understanding where play was happening in animals, and this really helped put the, the field on a, a solid footing. The more I reflect on this conversation, and on play in general, the more convinced I am that play needs to be more than just a footnote in animal behaviour, but rather it's a central pillar to animal culture, and in that I include human culture. And I find myself agreeing with the quote that Gordon puts at the beginning of his book. It's a quote from Johann Huitzinger, and it goes like this. Now in myth and ritual, the great instinctive forces of civilized life have their origin. Law and order, commerce and profit, craft and art, poetry, wisdom and science, all are rooted in the primeval soil of play. I'm James Robinson, you're listening to Multiverses. Gordon Burkhart, thank you for joining me on Multiverses. I'm glad to be here. I think many people might think that play is, uh, you know, a curious subject, but it doesn't necessarily deserve serious academic attention in animals. Um, why, why should we study play in animals? Well, for one thing, it is a very common behavior that animals uh, do. Uh, it's been known, of course, for that mammals and some birds play a lot, you know, dog, puppies and cats and uh, horses and animals that we're familiar with. But uh, we now know that uh, many other animals play, including uh, lizards and turtles and even crocodilians and fish and amphibians, insect, octopus and a whole variety of animals. So the question is why? They do that, and uh, how did it originate, and so on. For a long time, it was thought that play was just a, a property of higher intelligent animals, mainly. It was, and so anything that wasn't a mammal or a few birds uh, was not considered uh, play. They always had reasons to uh, exclude what looked like play as play. And that was part of the problem in, um, in, in in play. But of course, play being sort of fun and un, not serious, supposedly, 
uh, meant that scientifically it was not taken as a serious subject. You, you touched on something very interesting there that uh, people didn't always recognize behaviors that, that we now understand to be play as play. Uh, and I think perhaps that harks back to the fact that everyone pre-scientifically, as it were, thinks we know what play is when we see it. Um, but to really understand play in very different species, you mentioned crocodilia, for, for example, we need a, a proper set of, uh, you know, a proper definition um, to be able to recognize it. Right, we need to have some criterias for recognizing play that are relatively clear and allow us to define or identify it if it occurs in animals that we don't know or think play or in context in which uh, we don't think would be playful, but may turn out uh, to, to be. And one of the things is that with uh, the idea that animals are having fun when they play, you know, they smile, wag tails, things like that. Well, that's a good clue with mammals, for instance, but uh, it's not gonna help you with a turtle yeah. or a fish, right? Who don't, they don't have facial expressions. They don't have those kind of, of signals that uh, indicate that they're quotes having fun. And so that was one of the reasons I think that people uh, disparaged any possibility that uh, animals uh, such as fish could uh, engage in playful behavior. So we look at animals, mammals mainly, and we say, oh, this is play because they're enjoying it. Um, but we need something a little bit more solid than that. And that's been one of your kind of major contributions, um, although you've, there's lots of things for us to talk about. But um, yeah, can you take us through um, the five criteria that you came up with for, for putting play on a kind of solid academic footing? Right. I uh, tried to look at all the definitions that were out there about play behavior and uh, tried to find those that covered all kinds of play. There were some criteria for play uh, that involved just social play, you know, like play signals and so on. And that would obviously only involve animals that playing with each other, but animals play solitarily. They play with objects, you know, and toys and things like that. And so you, if it's got a social signal as part of the definition, then it won't cover those kinds of plays. So uh, what I uh, tried to do was come up with the five criteria. And one of the things is when you look at the behavior, it's, it's not completely functional or mm. adaptive in the context in which you see it. Incompletely functional is what I call I called it. Uh, so you see the animals may look like they're fighting, or mm -hmm. wrestling, and so on, but you know it's not serious fighting. Right. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have any function. It might be helping them, in many ways, develop their muscle skills and you know practice movements and things like that. Uh, but it, on the surface, it doesn't seem to be functional as the behavior itself, or like with a, a cat playing with a rubber mouse. Uh, it clearly knows it's not food, uh, but it attacks it, releases it, you know, attacks it again, mm -hmm. it does things with it. And so that would be, uh, you know, another indication of, of behavior that uh, was incompletely functional in the context in which it is, is expressed. Um, um, another criterion would be that it is done uh, for its own sake or voluntarily or uh, 
for fun. If you, yeah. Any one of those criteria would, uh, or those uh, statements would fit. In other words, the animal's not coerced into doing it. So that's important. So even like with kids, if they're forced to play, then it's not really play, right? Uh, yeah. From their perspective. And we have to look at the animal's perspective and the, or, or the child's. Um, and then a lot of times behavior is incomplete or awkward or um, appears earlier in life than it normally is necessary for serious purposes. So like with rats, it turns out that um, rats are one of the most playful species uh, and they've been the focus of the most play research of any mm -hmm. animal are rats but they primarily play when they're young right for a period of after weaning for several weeks uh they are really motivated and for play in very complex social ways um, later in life they may still play with objects and do other things but it sort of wanes and so we often think about play as something that's uh, characteristic of young animals mm -hmm. but not only uh, the first documentation I had a play in a turtle was of a turtle that was older than me. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, this a pig face? Uh, yes, that was pig face <laughs> at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Uh, so that's uh, an, uh, another one of the, of the criteria. Uh, either it looks different than the normal behavior or it appears earlier in uh, and ontogeny than would normally appear. And uh, then the behavior has to be repeated. If you see a one-off sample of a behavior, um, I would we, we can't say that's play. An animal comes up to an object and pushes it and then walks away, doesn't do anything more with it. Wouldn't say that a play, but it's just sort of a curious exploration, exploratory mm -hmm. response. But if it Will come back to the object, picks it up, manipulates it, and does things in a repeated fashion. Uh, then we can. That's one of the criteria. So it has to be. Uh, the animal may do this behavior only for a short period in its life, right. but it does it many times in that uh, short, short period. Right. Uh, yeah. Of course, a lot of animals play throughout their whole lives. Um, you know, humans, apes, and things like that. Um, and then the last uh, criterion is that the uh, animal has to be a you know relatively healthy, stress-free, free, uh, not imbued with competing needs or you know fears, social, uh, you know, social problems, social stress, and things like that. Um, and that's why often we find animals that play a lot in captivity, if they're kept in good conditions in captivity, um, and they don't have to deal with uh, predators and finding food and things like that, they have the more of the time and the resources to, uh, to engage in play. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my first ideas was that this was sort of a way of escaping boredom. Right. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I really like this set of criteria. Um, 
and it, you know one of the reasons is is the is the point that you um made earlier where it it doesn't specify any particular characteristic of play or, or or sort of form of play it doesn't say oh it's got to be kicking a ball or you know moving around or interacting with others um it it, it just gives this very raw yet quite you know restrictive enough set of criteria mm -hmm. so we have the the functionally incomplete and um sort of end in itself which you know there's interesting links between the um between these is of course because if something were functionally complete then it sort of means that you know oftentimes it wouldn't be an end in itself right <laughs> you wouldn't do it for the pure pleasure of the activity um and of course then there's the link to it being either precocious or structurally different again if it if it weren't functionally incomplete it, it seems you know it, it wouldn't necessarily be precocious because you'd already be sort of doing that activity seriously um and so yeah there, there's kind of interesting almost conceptual overlaps um one thing I'm curious about is whether you see any of those uh, criteria somehow more fundamental than the others. Uh, for instance, you know, could we, if we see all of the first four criteria satisfied, but animals sort of stressed, might we say, oh, despite you know, despite it being uh, under stress or ill or, or whatever, it's playing nonetheless. Well, uh, we do know that there are uh, it's evidence that play may be a way of dealing with stress. Mm -hmm. So mild stress uh, and boredom, of course, is a, is, is a stress. Yeah. Right? Uh, so um, if you're under stress and even in a, if you're a kid in a very poor uh, circumstances and don't have a lot of resources in your family, you see kids playing unless they're sick or unless they're starving you know so that they're you know bones are showing because there is this internal motivation to engage in uh and this behavior so uh but if there is some stress in the environment like food shortages and so on studies have shown that with monkeys for instance and the same species in populations where there's plentiful food or maybe not so much food of, of, of a more harsh environment uh the same species has different levels of play behavior mm. uh, and animals that live in seasonal areas where there's a dry season and a wet season and when the dry season there's, there's not much food and so on play goes down and then when mm. the food comes out in the wet season um fruit eating monkeys and so on you see the increase in play. This has been shown on howler monkeys, for instance. So there's a quite a bit of evidence uh, showing that uh, the resources available to the animal, nutritional resources, mm. uh, among others, uh, but they're very important, can provide a context in which play is seen more often. Yeah, yeah. I think such some previous guest was Simon Kirby, who studies language evolution perhaps it's kind of central thesis is that while humans don't have any sort of special brain for language learning the removal of certain selection pressures has meant that we're able to interact much more imitate each other much more and sort of pass down a communication system um, because we're not in such fierce competition with one another uh, we can sort of get closer as it were and collaborate more 
and so it's, it's interesting again how there the kind of removal of of stress i i think language itself is very very playful <laughs> and um possibly uh language learning really does actually fit the many of those or maybe all of those criteria oh yeah the verbal play is certainly repartee and so on uh yeah. is, is is playful it's gonna be social play uh there's studies showing that babbling and so on and babies when they're you know practicing and you know at night they'll sort of say words and things um those seem to fit the play criteria and they've even been uh identified in parrots uh, <laughs> language learning that uh they uh, have they babble yeah 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 i certainly find myself babbling sometimes i try not to do it too much on this uh on this podcast but um yeah i i think um i mean it, it, it speaks to that point um and again the, just the thinking of parents uh it's clear that parental care uh, creates that space i guess uh for play so perhaps that's why part of why it's much more recognizable in in some species rather than others um, right i think parental care uh, provided uh, buffered the animals in a way from having to deal with a lot of the serious issues that you know for survival uh on their own so a young reptile typically that's born with no parental care has to uh, immediately at hatching or at being uh being born by the mother has to uh, find food uh protect itself from the elements uh defend itself have anti-predator you know systems all ready to go mm -hmm. uh, if it's going to survive at all and of course many uh, many many do not but you have an animal that's born in less developed states i mean the reptiles are really precocious they have all their functional systems mm. uh going locomotor and sensory whereas you know like a human baby or a rat pup is born blind mm. uh and uh ears are covered and so on and it's maybe quite a number of days before the eyes open before the ears uh function normally and uh and and so on uh so that then the parents providing the food and protection mm. and you know a warm safe place uh but they're in a sort of then a relatively boring area and as they're developing they have their behaviors that are the the instinctive kind of mm. mechanisms or behavior systems that are uh, going to need to exploit for <laughs> survival um they're ready to go and so in that environment they're going to maybe start practicing or playing or they want to do something because it's important to keep the body moving <laughs> and, and that's so we have to we talk about what what is play for we have to distinguish between the delayed benefits you know right. the whole idea about the practicing for future you know the fighting ability or forging skills or the immediate functions of play in providing exercise getting the heart moving mm -hmm. uh, sensory motor coordination uh and those kinds of things uh, so we have both the immediate and the delayed functions of play and often we uh, uh don't recognize the need to distinguish those 
Yeah, and it's and it's interesting what you said. It's interesting the how the fragility of certain species, um, you know, creates this kind of duty of parental care or the necessity of parental care, and and that opens the space for play. And at least from a human perspective, um, that seems like a very good thing. I'd say in general, humans we we have a very positive. Um, view of play. Uh, however, I did want to point out that um, I think your definition is very, um, you know, leaves out any kind of valence there. It, it doesn't say play is positive or, or negative. It's just if you fit these criteria, it counts as play. But you're not making any kind of um, argument right. for play being beneficial, uh, even adaptively. Um, right. It could have no real function at all. And that's what I talk about, primary play, process play versus secondary versus tertiary process play, uh, which I think may be a sort of, a, sort of an evolutionary uh, trajectory that play has taken so that it has become, uh, I think, quite important and mm -hmm. maybe uh, essential for us becoming human in a way and, and our cognitive um, skills and emotional uh, complexity may be really due to uh, play playfulness. Yeah. And maybe talk us through that. So I guess prime primary uh, play is, is sort of, it's almost like those proximate causes, like what, what sparks it in the first place? And it might be, like you say, um, boredom in an animal, which has just got an excess of resources and energy and and it just you know it's playing with its inst it's testing out its instincts um so that would be sort of at the i guess least adaptive or useful um it's, it's more or less just an outlet <laughs> um right and that's the, this this was the basis of the a surplus energy uh mm -hmm. theory of play uh, from the 19th century with schiller and spencer and uh some of those people which was then attacked by other people who had the practice theory that well play really was practice for serious adult behavior mm -hmm. uh, and uh, well, both of them ignored the functions the immediate functions of play uh what it provides for the animals emotionally and uh in terms of physical development uh, but it is true that uh, behavior can uh, manifest itself in many different many many, many different uh, uh, ways uh, but the surplus energy idea was one of the things that was a spark in my mind right uh, but I thought it was more than just energy metabolic energy it was also the resources right uh, uh, so time is a resource. So that's why the parental care provides a space and animals that can do more things with their body have a richer instinctive repertoire of behaviors uh, you're going to find more play in animals that can do more things with their bodies uh, and i started my career focusing on snake behavior and uh snakes really have some limitations right I mean, they don't have limbs they don't have mobile mobile faces and things like that 
And uh, so I discovered examples uh, of play in lizards, which are very closely related to, to, to snakes. Uh, uh, but there's not too many good examples that we can identify as play in snakes. There are some, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they have fewer ways of fitting those criteria. Right. Or I guess they, maybe the onus is sort of on us to yeah. to see. You know, they could actually be quite playful, but it might just be very hard to recognize, I suppose. Um, like the, the play could be extremely subtle or maybe even more or less invisible, like be kind of internal. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, one of my uh, ideas has been that uh, in child studies, they talk about pretend play and pretense and sociodramatic play. Uh, and imagination. Mm. And I think that these may have developed out of physical play so that we get to the point that we don't have to actually do the behaviors. We can mentally rehearse them yeah. in our minds. Uh, so uh, we can say, if I want to find the best way home, driving home, I can uh, imagine, well, if I go this way, well, there's a traffic light there. There's maybe congestion there uh, on the roads. And so I don't have to actually do it and then learn through trial and error, like in a maze, which is the best way home. But I can make a mental map and then, you know, explore that. And I think uh, play can provide the uh, the resources for uh, animals to have the mental capacity to uh, internalize and so have mental play. Mm. And so imagination, pretense uh, come out of uh, out of that behavior. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how um, a lot of play does seem to involve uh, imitation. I mean, one of your criteria is repetition, and one often sees, uh, you know, children, but, but also animals kind of imitating um, other animals, older animals, and um, but with variation. Um, so it's almost like, and that's very similar to what happens when we're thinking about things, like your example of, of driving home one has this kind of internalized model of the world where you're making changes. Um, but perhaps the entry point to that is a more external behavior where you might, um, another example would be role reversal where um, uh, sort of older animal, uh, sorry, one animal pretends to, you know, takes the role of another or play fighting where a, um, animal handicaps it it's self-handicaps mm. and all these things are sort of i guess variations or changes of our normal patterns of behavior kind of explorations that that maybe can later be um internalized like you say right well uh you brought up some of these additional criteria that we use for social play mm -hmm. uh, that aren't 
relevant to object play and locomotor play and so on. Uh, and that is, uh, as you pointed out, role reversals. Uh, you know, an older or a stronger or a more skilled person engaging in a game with a child or uh, we see this in bears, we see this in, the, in apes too, uh, will uh, downgrade their ability to keep the game going mm. because they know if they, you know, always win, you know, it's, that's not the, the loser is not going to uh, want to continue. So uh, that's called the self-handicapping idea and uh and role reversal is we see this in the rap uh pups playing um where in both males and females uh they they take turns being on top and the bottom and pitting each other and and, mm. and, and so on uh but in the serious fighting you know there's no there's no opening for you know fun <laughs> right because yeah. you're really uh in, engaged in a serious uh interaction dealing with a resource that one wants uh or they both want and they're fighting for yeah i i to kind of complete the come back to your previous thought on the primary secondary and tertiary roles just to make sure that was completely clear to, to folks that um and let me try and state this back. I might get this wrong, but so you have, so the primary um, elements of play might be just you know what what sparks it in in the first place, what gets it off the ground. Um, right. It could be uh, motivational conflicts, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't know do this or do that, and you sort of do something else as a right uh, a displacement or uh, and. People may use like video games, you know. Uh, well, I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do that, and uh, I end up <laughs> doing something other. So that's a mild stress, a conflict, <laughs> and, and uh, spend your time in a video game. And of course, that can become sort of destructive, individual, you know, for the individual or or, or, or socially, mm -hmm. uh, just like play uh, that maybe fun and socially engaging like can turn into serious gambling mm. and where people lose resources or um, you know they lose them can lose everything and yeah uh, and uh so play can turn into an, an addiction in a way mm -hmm. uh, so, so i guess that's the the, the primary um Positive or the forms are what gets the ball rolling, but then, then the secondary are ones which are sort of where the play becomes adaptively sustaining. I suppose in in that it 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 hones or um, it maintains sort of keeps the eye in maintains. Yeah, that's the yeah. word I'm looking for. So it's uh, so this is the play. This is what I call secondary process. Play. Secondary, yeah. Where the play has a role in maintaining the system, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we know, for instance, that uh, in in primates, if you when they're born, if you put blinders on them so they can't see for 
you know, the first weeks of life, um, their eyes actually start to deteriorate. And right. so when you then provide them with light, it, they really can't, uh, can't, can't deal with it uh, because well, they needed light experience to maintain the visual uh, system. <laughs> and that can also work with the motor system. And uh, so uh, this is where these immediate effects of play uh, may partake in the process so that when the animal is moving and mm. aging in play, it's what it's doing is not so important as the fact that it's doing something, that it's engaging yeah. in complex uh, behavior, perceptual motor coordination, and so on. It's kind and of exercising. It, it, to... skills. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, an old fellow like me, uh, we're supposed to be active, right, and exercise and so on, which is much better for me if I'm playing pickleball or something that's, you know, enjoyable, that's play. Uh, but it, the function is that it keeps your heart going and maintains. It's not giving me skill to become a, you know, champion or whatever, but it's just maintaining my systems. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of uh, uh, play can be uh, a way of maintaining the behavior systems of the uh, the cardiovascular system, the muscular system, the perceptual coordination systems, and so on. And then tertiary play is uh, the play where it actually helps you move to another level mm -hmm. of expertise. Uh, and uh, this is where uh, what we call creativity may you know, come in, or it uh, helps you uh, get another level of social ability and dealing with people um, and um, helps with your imagination or, you know, creativity. Scientists and artists, uh, I think, are uh, known for tertiary play, uh, at dealing with things and coming up with new hypotheses, new ideas, uh, and you have to do that by combining different elements. And, uh, you know, that sort of a playful kind of activity. Yeah. Yeah. It, coming back to this point that the, the definition sort of, or these criteria sort of remove our blinkers and allow us to look further afield from mammals. Do you have any, um, particularly favorite examples of play, perhaps in unexpected species um, or places? Well, um, the Komodo dragon is one of my, my my favorites. We had some here at the zoo, and I we studied them at the National Zoo, but also in our uh, local zoo here in Knoxville. And um, they just like to put pails and boxes and stuff on their heads and walk around <laughs> with, uh, yeah. uh, with them. And uh, that was really amazing to me. And I, I think I have some ideas where it comes from. But uh, 
orangutans and apes are known for putting things on their heads, cabbages and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, whatever they can put, they like to put things on their head and walk around with them. And But here you see uh, uh, the Komodo dragon doing that. And it's intentionally depriving itself of right. the ability to see. Yeah. Now that, that doesn't seem useful. <laughs> so most animals wouldn't want to do that, right? Because they're yeah. prey. But the Komodo dragon, being the sort of the king of the island, right. uh, uh, doesn't have much fear that he's going to be uh, uh, attacked, perhaps. And uh, so engaging in that behavior is, uh, I've never seen it in other lizards. Yeah, it, it it's fascinating, and I, I've seen some videos of um, a very famous uh, Komodo dragon playing with your shoe as well. Uh, and um, well, I have two questions. One is, do do you still have that shoe? And secondly, I was curious to know, yeah, w why might uh, Komodo dragons want to put things on their heads? I mean, um, yeah. Well, no, I don't have the shoe, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I think that these animals are, they bring down, you know, a Komodo drake can, can bring down a, a water buffalo, uh, bigger than itself. And as it sits there, it attracts many other uh, animals, uh, other dragons, and they come in a communal sort of feast and they tear it apart and they, have to put their head deep into the carcass to get, you know, the food and the bones, and um, and that sort, of, you know, you're when you're putting something in like that, you're not no, you know, you're blinding yourself and so on, and uh, yet you have to do that to get the uh, get uh, get the food, uh, and so I think that. This playful behavior with the pails and boxes derives from uh, their need to sort of put their heads deep into a carcass to get uh, get food. So it comes out. I think most play behaviors uh, originate in a uh, behavior system that's evolved behavior system or instinct is. Uh, sometimes call up instinctive systems. Yeah, so it's as if we or animals have this kind of compulsion to do certain things for adaptive purposes, but then play is doing those same things, but as you say, it's functionally incomplete or, or or structurally different from you know the actual useful behavior. Right. Um, and that's sort of this, the start of this pyramid that um, then may later create some adaptive behavior. You might discover, oh, actually doing this is useful. Um, you know, this, this helps me survive and procreate. Um, yeah, yeah, I, that's, that's really fascinating. I, on the subject of, of reptiles, I, I know you're, you're a passionate advocate for um, reptiles and, and, and for trying to, uh, argue for a better understanding of them. Uh, you mentioned earlier how 
they don't have facial expressions they don't have ears that can sort of uh, droop so that, that let us know that they're unhappy or um smiles they don't you know scream or laugh um so it's very hard for humans i think to uh, empathize or, or understand the world of of, of reptiles uh, what so, you know how, how do we go about um improving that i mean with reptiles and, and in general how do we go about better understanding and, and moving away from our um anthropocentric viewpoint if we should do that well i think that is very important we need to move away from being anthropocentric um, and anthropomorphic in an uncritical uh sense uh and one of the ways is uh by observing the animals and doing experiments to see what stimulates them, what are their what what's their perceptual world, what's important to them, their umwelt, mm. uh, uh, would tell us. Uh, and we all have our own umwelt, uh, the environment around us that uh, is salient and has meaning uh, to us, but it can vary between different species in the same environment a fly a dog a human uh in the same environment maybe find different things that are uh, uh salient but different humans in the same environment due to their past experiences their age their gender whatever uh may find different things salient um, and respond differently to the stimuli so we assume that something that's painful to me would be painful to you, uh, but that's not locked in as a certainty. Uh, uh, but since we we share the same species, uh, we assume those things. But it's taste, for instance, and and, and food preferences are a good example where people can have very great differences in saying something is good something tastes bad and yet you're both the same species right and i found early on in my work with uh with snakes even that they have even the snakes from the same litter uh brothers and sisters had different food preferences mm. right at birth uh and so these are evolved types of systems uh that go back to way back into time yeah i, I want to um yeah mention again or this this or go over the 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 umwelt uh or from this concept introduced by jacob von uh Uxkill, if I, Uxkill, uh difficult name uh yeah it's such a beautiful idea and it's been around for for quite a long time and it's in some ways very simple it's just you know we have to understand that each each animal has its own sensory um sensory way of perceiving the world and i, I suppose as you say depend not only on their kind of sense equipment but maybe their experience of the world as well um and it, it seems so simple but i think it does move us away from I guess what I want to say is that one sometimes thinks of anthropomorphism as just ascribing intentionality and emotions 
to animals, but it, it's actually much broader than that. It's like you say, it might just be ascribing to them similar tastes and preferences as us. For example, like we might be puzzled why, um, you know, lizards might seem particularly docile and, and, and slow, uh, but it might be because we've got them in a in a room at human room temperature, right? Not at the preferred room temperature of a lizard. Um, and and uh, just another example, I think, you know, we see slowness as a sign of unintelligence, uh, but of course, slowness isn't anything to do with intelligence it's to do with how you know fast you process things um one can imagine you know just as a thought experiment an extremely intelligent um lizard or animal that just takes a long time to come up with answers because it's just moving at a different metabolic pace right it's just it's living on a different time scale as it were um yes that's very important so yeah i i, I feel like it was a revelation to me just reading some of your your comments on anthropomorphism that it's much it's much broader than just looking at intentions and and, and emotions and ascribing them or not ascribing them to to, to animals. Um, yeah, you, I mean, perhaps you can. Uh, I know there's been some interesting examples where, for example, with play, um, because we don't study necessarily the animal in their kind of natural preferred environment, we might miss things. I'm thinking particularly here of, um, of amphibians. Uh, I don't know if you have some e examples there. Amphibians? Yeah, oh, so tur turtles and things. Uh. Oh, turtles. Uh, yeah, pig face, of course, was the first one that I really studied, first reptile that I really studied, and we got a lot of videos. Uh, and uh, it was a big very big turtle very old male turtle and uh in a concrete aquarium i mean couldn't do too much and it was starting to uh self-mutilate itself and scratch and you know and uh, the keeper got very concerned about this he said well maybe the animal's bored and so he uh Started putting in balls and hoops and hoses and things for the animal to engage uh, with, and he really did so. And uh, the level of self abuse, you might say, went way down. Mm. So uh, that was one of the first inklings that uh, the, these animals, uh, A, could get bored. Um, just because they're sort of in you know, a zoo and you see them sort of sitting there doing nothing mm. uh, like a museum diorama uh it doesn't mean that that's what their life is really like mm. uh, they can be very active and so on and you pointed out the role of temperature for instance having the proper temperature and humidity and other features uh for many of these animals uh are very important uh, for for their survival, and we're doing much better with keeping amphibians, you know, frogs, salamanders, and and reptiles in captivity uh, since we developed some really sophisticated ways of controlling things like temperature, humidity, uh, raising the proper types of food, keeping it in the right uh, right, right environment. So that's very important. Uh, 
but in the in the frogs, what we uh, I saw uh, was wrestling these in huh. the poison back poison frogs, uh, which are diurnal frog, uh, which most frogs are nocturnal and secretive, and they're very prone to be predated. Uh, but these poison frogs are very toxic, brightly colored, and signal to other animals that don't mess with us because you know it's it, not not good. And uh, uh, these animals uh, I found were, and others had found too, uh, would hop around and engage in wrestling behavior and uh, doing various things that if you saw them in the rats rat pups that were doing all this uh, uh, play fighting, uh, you, you call it play. And mm -hmm. uh, But uh, the herpetologists weren't calling it play, they were calling it uh, non-agonistic fighting, mm -hmm. something or that serious fighting, which was really play, because they know that uh, there was no injuries or it wasn't serious. Uh, and uh, so that was sort of a, uh, but the blinders were that well, frogs can't play, or right. maybe can't play. Therefore, it's got to be something else. Yeah, there's a kind of you've commented on anthropomorphism by omission, which I I I I, I kind of think of almost as anti-anthropomorphism. That one might that one assumes that there are certain things that are kind of uniquely human or maybe mammalian like play, and so they just can't exist in in other species or um other kingdoms and so one yeah what sort of we can sometimes go too much in the opposite direction away from anthropomorphism and in your story about um pig face you mentioned that the the keeper thought well this this this, this animal is bored and again to many that will seem a very human emotional attitude um but it seems like he was right <laughs> yeah. and so actually sometimes we, we we ought to ascribe these kind of human what we think of well, as quite human characteristics to well that was the background for my concept of critical anthropomorphism yes uh, and where we don't deny that we are animals too and that we have emotions and feelings and responses to environments and those can be clues to how another animal might also, another species might also uh, respond to that environment. It doesn't prove anything, but it gives the insight that, hey, maybe this is also happening uh, with uh, this other animal. And so the, uh, the herpetologist uh, named Dale Marcellini, who was trained uh, with one of the leading reptile ethologists, Chuck Car uh, Charles Carpenter, uh really had the you know insight to say hey maybe it's bored right you know, that was uh and um so if it's bored what do you do you give an animal something to to do to uh, just like concrete you know tub basically uh and uh yeah turn you know turned out to be uh uh help the animal individually its welfare 
um, but also uh, broke open the uh, limitations on where we see play. And, yeah. and then there was old stories about playing fish. And again, they were all dismissed. Uh, and this was before there was good video and things like this. So it's all anecdotes and stories that uh, people could uh, dismiss. Uh, but now we got lots of good video and examples of, uh, of play and all these other animals. It's not nearly as common as in mammals mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and birds, uh, but it pops up throughout the the animal kingdom in um, in many places. And so I think that it's when a certain set of criteria and the, the animal's biological uh, features permit, play is one of the uh, behaviors that uh, that emerges. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's, it seems that it's not, would it be right to say that it's not evolved at a single point, it's not homologous, but it's it, it pops up, like you say, and, and it seems to have popped up independently in all over the place. Yeah. In fact, that it occurs in invertebrates as well as vertebrates, mm. yeah. and um, and they split off. You know, how many hundreds of billions of years ago? Uh, millions of years ago, uh, with animals that probably did not play at all, yet independently seems to have uh, have have a, a, yeah. a reason. Yeah, so we see octopuses play. I have a very speculative question here. Um, the, the next person that I'll be interviewing is uh, Sean McMahon, who's a an astrobiologist. Now, obviously, there's no ethology in astrobiology yet because we've not discovered anything. <laughs> there's no uh, aliens whose behavior we can study. Um, but let's speculate that we do, you know, um, we, we 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 find an alien species and not only that we find an intelligent one not you know the most likely scenario is we find some bacteria or something like you know mm. something like that yeah. um but let's suppose we we, we meet an intelligent series uh, species um completely alien do you think it's likely that we'll see play in, in or we would see play in, in that species well, that's a very interesting <laughs> question and a scenario. Uh, what would these organisms look like? You know, I'm, I remember going back to the War of the Worlds, <laughs> you know, with these uh, aliens from Mars, you know. Uh, So we have difficulty entering the world of other animals on this planet. Yeah. And uh, a completely alien life form, we'd have to find out a lot more, like what do they eat? Or how do they survive? And all these things. Yeah. That, uh, and we need to have what in ethology we would call the ethogram, uh, mm -hmm. a good descriptive categorization of the elements of their behavior and the context in which they 
occur and the sequences and, and so on. And uh, that's why a lot of, for a lot of animals, we do not know how they play or if they play because you just don't know enough about them at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. They've been so a little studied. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a duly cautious answer. I mean, <laughs> sort of. But I, yeah. I would love to believe that uh, play could occur across the space-time continuum. <laughs> I mean, tell you, I mean, again, the lovely thing about the criteria is, um, you know, it doesn't require that that species have arms or legs or whatever. No. <laughs> it can still play. And um, and I do wonder, I mean, what makes me ask, what makes me wonder is that, um, I mean, if we not only suppose that, suppose that the, the species was intelligent, but that it had some kind of civilization and technology and so forth, I, I kind of feel that maybe play is... Um, that, that kind of tertiary play, that tertiary process of play, is almost, it might be a necessary building block to get there. You might really need to mess around with things and reconfigure things in that playful, creative way um, where, you know, there's no, there's no clear, there's no clear purpose to it. <laughs> like the purpose is quite far off. So it's not functionally com complete. Um, it, you're repeating yourself, but trying variations you're doing it for for pleasure um so it feels like to get there one you know play might be quite an important um step on on the journey um right no i think if we could find it in you know alien life forms that would uh um, really cement the idea that play is an extremely important uh means for organisms of any kind to evolve into uh develop involved to be complex and intelligent and and so on yeah i although this does remind me i i want to again emphasize that while you know in in there's certain movements which really um promote play very strongly like the kindergarten movement which i think is a is a wonderful thing for example but you give some great examples uh, of, of the fact that play can be you know it's not necessarily a, a good thing it perhaps it could move civilization forward but it could also it can be regressive you mentioned how it can turn into addictions and it can become compulsive and um uh, and also even where it's not compulsive there might be um there's quite an old example in your book of uh, i think it's edward thompson who talks about a, a sparrow dropping stones on a poor toad or uh, who's stuck in a fence post hole not and, cruelty and uh and, yeah. and torture can be a uh from the perpetrator's viewpoint play uh not from the victims same thing with teasing and bullying um uh, and often the people who do that think, oh, I'm just playing, you know, why are you taking it so serious? But if you're the target, you, you take it serious and it's uh, humiliating or mm. demeaning or whatever. Uh, and uh, 
the perpetrator doesn't seem to get it or is deliberately avoiding acknowledging what he's doing or she's yeah. doing yeah i think it's important to yeah that that we keep this in mind because there can be a danger of maybe over prioritizing play um uh, and sometimes one you know needs to have other forms of of learning for example i think um yeah it's interesting as well i mean there's there's when i think of um play fighting in a in contrast to that sparrow and toad example there's often like a kind of ritual which like a dog's bowing which um both dogs kind of sign up to the play fight and signal to each other with this this meta communication and i yeah. find that example sorry go ahead. yeah that's another uh one of the signs of social play are these play signals mm. uh, that only occur in a playful context and the play bow is one that's been uh very highly uh studied uh, uh particularly by uh mark beckoff who's uh one of the early play uh, scholars who focused on painted play and uh, the signal and of course you know about the tail wagging and so on uh, yeah. but uh, the play bow is interspersed within the, the wrestling and so on and they'll uh, do the uh, play bow and there are some animals that have vocalizations for instance that only occurred during play right uh, and uh, I raised bear cubs for a while and we were very playful, uh, but they made no sound during play. Mm. The play got pretty rough and they got annoyed maybe with each other. Then you would start hearing a little growl or a little whimper or a little sound. And mm. then you knew that one of the participants was getting a little annoyed or tired or wasn't that playful for them uh, anymore. Uh, and uh, but play itself was always silent. Mm. But that's not true with you know other animals. So you have to know the species that you're uh, that you're dealing with. You can't make you know a statement that well play is quiet or play is noisy. Uh, mm. Kids mm -hmm. play. Uh, there's an old paper on glee, glee. <laughs> uh, and kids. Um, it's really a little paper uh on the gleeful behavior in, in, in kids when they're excited and so mm. on in the classroom and um so they're not silent when they, mm. yeah. when they play what's, what's funny about the the the, the dog sparring example is is to me that almost seems something that that does work across species um because uh, when one looks at martial arts it's it's always you know begins and ends with a bow so the striking thing there is actually that that seems to have <laughs> that tradition seems to have somehow evolved um you know separately in very very different um yeah contexts and um but but it didn't i mean one can see that a bow is kind of a position of deference and uh you know um one opens oneself up there because you can't quite see everything. So it's, it's, it, it, it kind of makes sense that in both species, actually, it, it serves this role as a, as a marker, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it, on the other hand, like you say, 
if uh, you know you're playing with children, it can be a great sign if they're making lots of of noise. But uh, great tip if you're playing with bears when they start making noise, yeah. <laughs> you might want to you might want to slow it down or call it off. Another thing that uh, I've been interested in recently is play. We play with dogs and cats and other animals. And they play with us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but animals play with each other. And so I've been very interested in interspecific play. Right. And uh, others have also, uh, because that indicates uh, how alien species yep. can understand each other and engage in like play fighting, you know, wrestling and chasing games. Um, and so there's some beautiful examples out there of, uh, of, a, of a cat and a turtle playing tag and uh, a dog and a lizard playing tug of war with a with a, with a, uh, a, a toy, uh, and uh, there's videos on, on YouTube. There's loads of things showing mm -hmm. like a, a kangaroo mm -hmm. and a deer fawn standing up, you know, wrestling with each other. Uh, a rabbit and a dog playing with a dog. Uh, I mean, things that you would not expect. Animals that are probably maybe raised together or get to learn that mm. you know out of danger to each other, uh, and yet and so they can start to signal and appreciate what the other one is signaling, and that this is meant to be a fun or uh, rewarding in some way encounter. Uh, so there are many examples of birds playing with you know dogs and it's, i mean it's just uh, uh, amazing we have a paper that came out uh this year uh, just, uh on that and i recently retired and i'm starting to go through all my old films and things and one thing that i did many years ago with knoxville zoo was uh raise a lion cup the all of a sudden, the zoo, which was more of a menagerie here in Knoxville at that time, now it's a very good zoo. Uh, uh, the lions got, had cubs and they didn't know what to do with them. And so, uh, Jack, Hannah, and I, there were two cubs uh, that called Meg and Amy. And uh, Jack, Hannah, who later became a zoo director and well known TV personality, uh, took one of the cubs and I took the other one home and raised it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, in our yard, and I would take it out in the yard, and it got, you know, big, much bigger than any cat. Right. Would, and uh, one day, the neighbor's dog came, there were no fences in our yards, uh, came over, and I discovered I had this film of the dog and the lion playing with each other, you know, rustling and, and so on. Um, and they immediately could understand the signals and the intention mm. that it wasn't, you know, a, an adversarial type of process uh, at, at all. And that's sort of, uh, I think, 
pretty remarkable yeah. to think about how you know animals that are so different can yeah. somehow appreciate this yeah. with a dog and a, a human you well they're domesticated and right. they've with us so long and so blah 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 uh to explain why they you know will play with us but when animals of different species play with each other uh, it's telling us something i think pretty profound about behavior and how we interact yeah absolutely when when a dog and a turtle who do not live in the same you know at least naturally not in the same yeah. kind of habitats um and probably wouldn't have anything to do with one each one another are able to interact in such what seems such a complex um you know almost ritualistic um way it, it is that does seem strangely optimistic <laughs> if i think yeah. think back to the extraterrestrial alien species again one hopes that uh should that ever happen i think it's unlikely in our lifetimes but should that happen we we, we find play as a way of getting along on some kind of common ground there yep i think that's a <laughs> that's a duly optimistic point to to end on I, w I wonder if you want to share any uh final thoughts or um message to the world as it were well just that that i think uh being playful and giving kids in particular opportunities for recess and for being out outdoors and getting into nature I think that's where too many children are not getting the experiences that I had and, uh, and other people of our generation had growing up mm -hmm. uh, because you know the dangers out there and there's ticks and there's you know germs and enemies and you know bad people uh which is sort of true and we need to uh, uh deal with that but we need to let kids get out and be kids and climb trees and uh explore things um and there's some really interesting work being done by a variety of researchers on uh, children's play and the importance of play and what the consequences may be of not allowing kids to to play in terms of providing resilience dealing helping them deal with things that they'll pull right uh there's an important theory there about play as a way of dealing with misfortune or you know, misadventures by brisky play uh balancing things and climbing and so on and you learn mm. how to deal with things that don't work out right yeah. right sometimes you know accidents can happen that may be serious but uh relatively yeah. rarely yeah it's important to learn how to fail in a yeah. in a relatively safe context yeah i think that's a lovely a lovely message oh thank you so much gordon this has been uh it's often hard on this this podcast because i, I talk to people who've done so many things and you've you've clearly done so much not just on play but um you know with reptiles and uh and uh, you know bring the umwelt into the discourse as well so um i feel like we've just scratched the surface of of all your research but it's been lovely okay well i enjoyed it. the conversation thank you <laughs>